Robots Radio presents... In 1965, director Robert Wise and star Julie Andrews gave the world a family singing troupe that still captures our hearts. In 2020, we finish our journey through all the offerings of a budget bourbon brand. The film is The Sound of Music. The whiskey is Very Old Barton 100 Proof. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1965 Best Picture winner, The Sound of Music. Brad, I'm kind of happy that we're getting back into the world of musicals again. It's been a little while since we've dipped our toe into the world of the musical. This is our second musical directed by Robert Wise after West Side Story, which we did last year. Yeah, I was going to say, this is our fourth musical overall, isn't that correct? I don't know, man. That's actually, I'm surprised that we're kind of keeping that, you know, two per season average. I'm happy that we are, though. This is not a genre that people are are likely to go into unless they have a real affinity for musicals, which I do. I really like watching musicals. And The Sound of Music is such a classic in that genre. Brad, I have to imagine that if you hadn't seen this movie, that you were at least familiar with some of the songs from it or the show itself. Oh, yeah. I have seen the movie probably three to five times throughout my childhood. However, it has been a very long time since I've seen it. And I was really excited to get back into it for the podcast. But you are right. Like, my wife hates musicals with every inch of her soul. Luckily, she kind of likes uh, White Christmas, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. But even she, who despises musicals, is able to sing So Long Farewell. She is able to sing parts of 16 Going on 17. She's able to sing parts of Do Re Mi. She, like, she hates musicals. And the other day when I told her that I was watching this, she just burst out into song. And I was like, wow, like she, she's never even seen it. And she knows the music. Yeah. And that's one of the crazy things about this movie and the show that it comes from. You know, it's Rodgers and Hammerstein. So two of the most famous Broadway musical composers of all time. And it's been, you know, what, 60-ish years, if not more, since this show premiered on Broadway. And it still has such a hold on American culture. Some of these songs are still so popular and so famous that you'd be really hard-pressed to find someone who is completely unaware of what's going on, at least musically, in this film. Oh, for sure. And Rodgers and Hammerstein were probably the most influential musical writers ever to live. And this was their final musical, Edelweiss, which is a super wonderful song in this film. It was the final song that Hammerstein ever wrote before he passed away. Wow. Like, they, like, this is a pretty momentous part of their career, and they capped it off pretty daggone well. Well, Brad, before we get any further, talking about the show itself or the movie, I think maybe we should introduce our favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen for our audience. So for those of you out there who may not have seen The Sound of Music, this is just for you. Brad, can you break down what we just watched in the film The Sound of Music? Yeah, so The Sound of Music is about a young, uh, she, she's not a nun yet. Um, what do they what, call what that? Are they called? Um, postulant? Co- postulant, yeah, I was going to say confessant. 
uh, a postulant. She's a young postulant at an abbey, which if you don't know what a postulant is, it means she's trying to become a nun. You have to go through a, a testing process first. And so she's in the process of becoming a nun and she is sent to be the governess for a family of children, a very wealthy family, the Von Trapps. And so she gets out there and meets the seven children who are all a little bit rambunctious and wild, but very good spirited children. And she slowly begins to teach them about how to live life. Their father is Georg von Tropp, uh, and he is, you know, a widower and he runs things very militaristically. And the children just want his love and affection. But ever since his wife died, he, you know, he's kind of a shell of himself. And the rest of the movie, you slowly see Maria, played by Julie Andrews, quite famously. You see her slowly pull Georg out of his shell. And they eventually fall in love and get married. And then it's also set, you know, which I didn't mention yet, but it's set in the late 1930s. And it's right during the Anschluss, where Germany annexes the territory of Austria into Germany's country. And so the Nazis eventually try to coerce Georg into rejoining the Ger- the German military. And so the the second half of the film is about them trying to escape the Nazi pressures into Switzerland. Yeah, Brad, I think that's actually a pretty good breakdown of what happens in this movie. There are so many directions we can go. And I feel like with a movie like this, a movie this beloved, a movie this popular, there's probably some things that it's almost like we're required to talk about a little bit. But Brad, I kind of want to throw it to you. Where do you want to go first talking about this film? Should we talk about Robert Wise's direction and maybe how it stacked up to West Side Story? Should we talk about the actors, especially Julie Andrews? Should we talk about the songs in this movie or the plot of the movie? Where do you want to go first? Man, I I really want to talk about the performances in this film because I think that anytime you use so many children actors, you're going to get a variety of uh, quality in them. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on all the different performances from the top with Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer all the way down to, you know, Rolf as the delivery boy. Yeah, Brad, I'm actually curious to hear what you think as well, because I think that especially the adult actors in this movie, I think they do a pretty good job, Uh, especially Julie Andrews. There is a reason that both of her most famous roles, Mary Poppins and Maria, are so iconic and they came a year apart. She makes her screen debut with Mary Poppins. She wins the Oscar for that. She's made she makes, I think, one movie in between and then she goes off and makes The Sound of Music. And I actually prefer her in this movie. Not only is it longer and it gives her more of a showcase for her acting skills, but I think that she shows a depth of emotion in this movie that she doesn't do in Mary Poppins. I think Christopher Plummer is also quite good. His character is devoid of emotion for the first half of the movie. But when he finally makes that transition uh, to kind of having that hard exterior cracked, that scene where he's standing in the doorway and watching his family, his children singing the song, The Sound of Music, and you start to see him tear up a little bit. I thought it was really compelling, and I thought he sold it pretty well. And where, may I ask, did they get these, um, these... Play clothes. Oh, is that what you call them? I made them from the drapes that used to hang in my bedroom. Drapes? They still had plenty of wear left. The children have been everywhere in them. Do you mean to tell me that my children have been roaming about Salzburg dressed up in nothing but some old drapes? Mm-hmm. 
and having a marvellous time. They have uniforms. Oh, straight jackets, if you'll forgive me. I will not forgive you for that. Children cannot do all the things they're supposed to do if they have to worry about spoiling their precious clothes. Or the... Well, they wouldn't dare. They love you too much. They fear you too much. I don't much. wish you to discuss my children in this manner. Well, you've got to hear from someone. You're never home long enough I to said know I them. I I don't want to hear any more from you about I my children. I know you don't, but you've got to. The reason that I say that the adult actors do so well is because I think I have a lot of problems with the script of this movie. Almost 100% of the time, everybody in the film is asked to behave as cutely as possible. Like the way people talk is in such a sort of cutesy manner for most of the movie. And I think the professional adult actors in the movie find a way to make it not seem so repetitious all the time. But a lot of the children actors it kind of wore on me after a while. And I, I probably sound like the most cynical old person saying that, but especially by like the two thirds mark when Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer have gotten married and then they come back from their honeymoon and Julie Andrews has this scene with the oldest daughter, Liesel and Liesel's supposed to be 16. And she's talking to Julie Andrews like, Oh, hello mother. I so love calling you mother. Isn't it wonderful to be a mother? It, like it just it it was grating for me after a while. And Brad, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I'd love to hear what you think about that. Yeah, I it's not something that I necessarily struggled with. I think that when you have a movie like this, you very quickly realize the emotional setting that you're uh experiencing, if that makes sense. And like this movie is never going to be a challenging movie. You're you're not going to get the children pushing back against Maria. You know, you like it's very obvious that they're going to fall in love with her and that she is going to bring them out of their shells and that she's going to make everything okay. And I think for me, I I actually really didn't mind that very much. The struggle for me with the children actors is other than Liesel, none of them really do anything the entire movie. And I feel like the script just uses them as like set pieces that Maria and Georg, you know, kind of traverse around. Liesel gets a little bit of character development. But other than that, you just don't get to know these children in any way, shape or form. And And that kind of bothers me. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're already kind of touching on something that I feel about this movie. You know, I, I grew up with this movie and it is ingrained in me, Brad. I have such a soft spot for it. But watching it through this time for the podcast, man, it, it's definitely a flawed movie. And for me, I noticed it right off the bat. You get this big cinematic opening number where Julie Andrews is twirling on a hilltop and it's incredible. And then as soon as you come down off the high of that song, there's like a half hour of nothing happening. And they go to the slowest possible plot development that they can in this abbey with these nuns who ultimately we don't really care about. And they're talking crap about Maria behind her back. And what I found really interesting was that I think probably two of the worst three songs in the movie are in that first 20 minutes. And it really kind of struck me as a bold move to pump the brakes as much as they did, because I kind of had a hard time getting into the movie. Did you have any problems with the pacing of the film, Brad? You don't like, uh, what's the name of it? Problem, you know, what do you do with a problem like Maria? I'm not a huge fan. I mean, it's a good song. I just think that it doesn't quite have the like forward momentum that the movie needed at that point. And then Maria sings this song when she's kind of leaving the Abbey on the way to the Von Trapp's home to become their governess called I Have Confidence. And that was actually a song that was written for the movie. It wasn't in the original Broadway play. And I kind of found myself asking, like, why? This was the best you could do? Because 
it's the least memorable song in the whole movie. And and honestly, I couldn't really tell you much about it except for um, in the Broadway play, The Book of Mormon, they wrote a song specifically parodying I Have Confidence. And that's the only reason I ever even remember that song is in this movie. I just really thought that it was like two throwaway songs right when we needed to get invested in the plot of the movie. That's super funny. Yeah, I I think that the opening of the movie, that this might sound weird. It's so 1960s. I don't know how else to put it, but I just, I honestly feel like the 60s were such a weird decade for films and it, and it even bled into the 70s a little bit where like you just get so much of this slow paced kind of expositional dialogue that isn't super interesting and i don't know maybe movies from like the 40s and 50s were better because they're in black and white and i didn't expect them to be fast and interesting but there's something about movies in the 60s and the sound of music is no exception where you get into the film and i just feel like more often than not films like this just drag they just kind of take a while to get going anywhere and you struggle to know why we're spending so much time on certain scenes with certain characters, which, like you said, Bob, in the end, the nuns are in the very start of the movie. They have one teeny tiny scene in the middle, and then they're in the end of the movie when they help the Von Traps, And that's it. And you don't really need to know much about them. But for some reason, you spend a decent amount of time with them at the start of this film. Brad, I think you made a really good observation about kind of where this movie is situated historically. It comes out in 1965. We're in the middle of a decade of really turbulent change in the United States and also really turbulent change in Hollywood. This was when the studios were finally starting to falter. 20th Century Fox, the studio that made this movie, they had gone almost bankrupt just a couple years before making the movie Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor. It lost so much money that this movie was kind of the film that they were hedging their bets on. They were really hoping this would become a success, would get them kind of back in the black again. But what I find really interesting about movies like this, like you said, Brad, I think the sort of epic, bloated, way too long movie reached its pinnacle in the 50s with those Cecil B. DeMille type, you know, the Ten Commandments or even uh, Ben-Hur at the end of the decade. And Hollywood didn't know how to do anything else. They could sense that there was this growing movement among young people. They didn't quite know how to cater to them yet. And it seemed like they just kept producing these over-budget, over-bloated movies to try to dig themselves out of the hole that they were creating for themselves. And I really feel that with this movie. You know, this is our second Robert Wise movie. And West Side Story had such a big, bold, youthfulness, brash forward momentum to it that this movie just absolutely does not have at all. Yeah. I mean, with with The Sound of Music, I, I think one of the reasons you get such a slower paced movie is simply based on the setting that it's in. Like when you think about West Side Story, you're in New York, literally probably one of the fastest paced cities in the world. And so it, it kind of makes sense that that film about teenagers and about strife and about racism and, and all these things, it makes sense that it would be a very fast-paced movie shot in a fast-paced city. With The Sound of Music, like from the very start, you are in pastoral Austria. Like you are in the countryside, you're in a villa, everything is slow-paced, everything is reminding you of the power and money that Georg von Trapp has. And, and so with this film, you, you do have that sense of slowness about it 
that it, it fits the setting. And and honestly, I don't I don't mind the slowness a ton. It's just it, like you said, it seems symptomatic of movies at that time that they eventually move away from. Yeah, for sure. I do think some of it has to do with the source material. And I've kind of already hinted that I think that there's some problems with the script of this movie, which goes back to the book of the Broadway play. You look at West Side Story, the lyrics for that that show were written by Stephen Sondheim, who has gone on to become you know one of the most famous lyricists ever. He was 25 when he wrote that show. And I think that that sort of vigor and youthfulness really got injected into that show. In The Sound of Music, we were just talking about it was Oscar Hammerstein's last musical before he died. And Richard Rodgers obviously lived for a longer period of time, but they were already kind of the established veterans. And I think that there's a huge difference just in those two shows between like the old guard on Broadway and what you got with this kind of new up and coming vibrant scene in New York with West Side Story. We can't really speak to that. This is not a Broadway podcast. But Brad, I, <laughs> I'm wondering, though, like separating out the filmmaking, like Robert Wise's decisions as a director, the camera setups, the pacing of the movie, things like that. What did you think of the script for this movie? Did you find the dialogue good or bad? Did you think that the structure of the movie was set up well? Or did you think it probably could have used some tightening up? Honestly, I, I mean, part of me finds it hard to complain about this because there's a sense that you look at this movie like this is the highest grossing film of all time. Like yeah. this movie has made massive amounts of money. It is universally beloved. So it, it seems funny that we're kind of critiquing a few of these things. And it's not that West Side Story is not also universally beloved, but the, the sound of music is like a whole nother level of A-list. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think especially because this movie leans so heavily into like the sentimental. And I think, you know, if we ever if we get into talking about critics reviews of this movie at the time, even a lot of people thought that it was like over the top schmaltzy and kind of manipulative. And I feel like I'm not quite there. I still love this movie. I, it still works for me. But I think that the reason people hang on to it so dearly is because it is such a sentimental movie. Yeah. And and with a sentimental movie, you're going to get a director who moves things more slowly, who who spends time in the cheesy moments. And there's parts of this movie where that's OK. But overall, I, I think that this movie, it just kind of drags on after a while. This is another one of those films that it feels like whenever we watch a movie that's more than two hours and 20 minutes, you and I usually come out to the conclusion that, man, they probably could have trimmed five to 15 to even 20, 25 minutes off of this film. And I don't think that the sound of music is any exception. I, I really feel like you could have cut out a few of these scenes. If you don't write that song about, you know, I have confidence, man, that's like that's like four to five minutes right there that you've cut off of the film. Yeah. And Brad, I feel like I'm going to be a heretic to people who love this movie. But I was thinking about this because I agree. I actually think this movie is probably about 40 minutes too long. I mean, if it was a two hour and 20 minute movie, I think it'd be perfect. And so I was thinking, OK, well, how would I cut 40 minutes out of this movie? And the more I think about it, the more that I think my big problem with the structure of this movie is that it can't decide what the central conflict of the movie is. For such a long period of time, the central conflict seems to be Maria falling in love with the captain, but the captain is in love or claims he's in love with this baroness from Vienna. And so it's, it's kind of a love triangle. But then that gets resolved at the end of Act 2. And Act 3 is the the sort of encroaching Nazi influence and them having to flee from the Nazis. 
And I honestly think that, first of all, the third act of the film is probably my favorite part of the movie. It doesn't have as many good songs in it, but from a dramatic standpoint, there's way more going on there. And I honestly think that if you cut out most of the stuff with the Baroness and the love triangle, this movie works a lot better. There's this whole section in the middle where Maria feels guilt, gets guilt tripped by the Baroness and leaves and goes back to the Abbey and then... Mother Superior has to convince her to go back to Georg again, and she sings Climb Every Mountain, which is a great song. But just from a strict plot standpoint, if you cut all of that out, if you cut out the whole Baroness subplot and just made it a movie about her slowly falling in love with the captain without this sort of shoehorned in conflict with the Baroness and made the the Nazi presence more of the tension in the movie, more of the conflict, I think this movie works a lot better. And yeah, you have to cut out one of the most beloved songs in the whole thing. But I think in terms of tightening things up and making it work better, that's what I would do. Well, and you could you can still throw Climb Every Mountain into the film. Right. Like, Someone else can sing it. Well, and if you have if you have the Nazis as the main threat and you have her falling in love, like at some point, Julie Andrews is going to have to climb some mountain and, you know, you better believe she's going to belt it. So I, I actually 100 percent agree with you, Bob. I think that this film if you tighten it up and you make it from the very start, you announce the Nazi threat and the Nazi presence in Austria and you talk about the Anschluss and you talk about how they're pressuring Georg to join the military, you know, because apparently he's this brilliant naval officer. I think that you have a much more deep and engaging film. For sure. Brad, I think your point is really fair. And I think that's what leads me back to agreeing that the strong point of this movie is Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. It's not even Robert Wise as a director. I think that he does some incredible things technically, which we'll touch on later. But the thing that really hooks me with this movie is Julie Andrews. Yep. Yeah. She is stunning in this film, like from the very opening scene to honestly, even when she when she stumbles in as the nuns are singing about her, she gives them such a look. And then just kind of like struts off. I I don't know. She is captivating from the opening moments of this film. I I don't think that if, you know, if you don't have Julie Andrews performance in this film, you don't have the highest grossing movie of all time. For sure. Like, I, I think her voice is stunning. But even beyond her voice, she brings so much vibrancy to this boring pastoral, you know, estate that is just desperately needed not you know not only to their estate but to this movie like if you don't have her personality drawing goodness out of every other character in this film then you just have a really boring movie yeah and that's the thing Brad is that i think there's two things happening here number 1 is that julie andrews is just such a vibrant movie star that your attention is drawn to her and you just you just fall in love with her but on top of that, I think even if we're just looking at what's written on the page, Maria is by far the most interesting character. And honestly, in some ways, she's kind of the only interesting character because she's the only one that has a little bit of an edge to her. Everybody else is just kind of very flat, you know, and even uh, the captain starts out gruff, becomes softer, but his character arc really isn't very pronounced. Whereas Maria, I love that she has some sass to her. I love that she stands up to the captain from right at the beginning of the film. And they have these wonderfully written scenes between her and the captain. And honestly, for all the problems I have with the script and how horrible the dialogue is in some scenes, those 
scenes of conflict where the captain and Maria are kind of feeling each other out are brilliant dialogue. There's just tons of, of quippy comebacks and looks that they shoot at each other. When the captain is trying to teach Maria how to call all the sig- the children with a whistle, and she talks about how she's like morally opposed to that. Now, when I want you, this is what you will hear. Oh, no, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I could never answer to a whistle. Whistles are for dogs and cats and other animals, but not for children and definitely not for me. It would be too humiliating. Fräulein, were you this much trouble at the Abbey? Oh, much more, sir. Hmm. Excuse me, sir, I don't know your signal. You may call me Captain. And then he... He thinks he can get one up on her by saying, all right, now this is going to be your signal. And he blows on the whistle and then he walks away and she just shoots right back at him. "Uh, Excuse me, sir. I don't know what your signal is (laughs) like. (laughs) I just love that she stands up to him. I love that she she has this conviction that she stands her ground. But more than anything, she's kind of the only one that brings some color into the movie where every other character is just kind of flat and predictable and boring, to be quite honest. Yeah, they all have very stilted and kind of stiff dialogue, like and and the, even just their affect and the way they talk to each other. Like Max and the Baroness are the two most boring characters in the world. Well, the thing that bothered me about Uncle Max, they call him in this movie, is that he is so obviously ripping off the Claude Rains character in Casablanca. It's like the exact same sort of like I'm the sidekick who says quippy things and is sarcastic and cynical and I roll my eyes a lot. And it's like, first of all, if you wanted Claude Rains, just, you know, call the man up. I don't, well, I don't know if he was still alive, but, (laughs) but it just seems like that character is a character I've seen a hundred times before. And it was almost like they were trying to find a character to add some color to things. And that didn't work for me. Right. Well, and even with like the Baroness and her subplot, it ends so pathetically. Like when they break things off, they just go from we're about to get married to, well, I suppose we don't love each other. Okay, well, why don't you go marry the young nun who's not going to be a nun? Okay, goodbye. And you're like, there's no passion. There's no affection. It it doesn't feel like there was any love there to begin with. It, It just makes for a very unbelievable side plot that, like you said, it didn't really need to be in the movie. But I will say, I I think that Christopher Plummer did a lot with a little. According to the people who worked with him in this film, he actually hated making this movie. Oh, yeah. Like, absolutely despised it. But I will give him, you know, credit where it's due. I think he put on a spectacular performance in the midst of a script that didn't do him any favors. I agree with that. Uh, you know, just to give some background on this movie, Christopher Plummer was a kind of classically trained actor. He wanted to be doing more serious stuff. He hated that he got cast in this movie. He dragged his feet the whole time. Apparently, he was terrible to the children the whole time. He was difficult to work with. He called Julie Andrews uh, Miss Disney all the time because she had just finished Mary Poppins. Uh, he said working with her was like getting beat over the head with a Valentine's Day card every day. And that's so that's the kind of attitude that he brought to it. In in the years after this movie came out, he started calling it the sound of mucus. Uh, so he seemed like a joy to work with. You know, in the years since he's said that he was immature and he's apologized for his actions. But 
I also think maybe that sort of apathy that he had toward the role really helped him out, especially in those early scenes, because you're right, Brad, he's not given much to work with, much to do. He's a very stiff character. And the moments of emotion that kind of creep into his performance, I thought were very subtly layered in there by Christopher Plummer. And that leads me to a question I have before we go to break. I was watching a YouTube video the other day with Jenna Fisher from The Office, and she was talking about uh, her chemistry with John Krasinski on that show and how a lot of times with actors, no amount of going out to dinner, getting to know somebody that's going to play your significant other can actually give chemistry on camera. There's just something there that happens and it's it's ineffable and you can't describe it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like you're a nice friendship. Exactly. And, yeah. and, our rom- and our romantic chemistry a little bit. Heyo. I don't know that Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer have chemistry. I think that they're both really good actors and that Julie Andrews is especially really good at those looks where you can see her eyes just getting wide and, and the fear in her eyes of what's happening to her as a character as she falls in love with this man. But when they finally get together, when they have that terrible song that they sing in the gazebo and then they kiss, I was like, oh, I don't actually think they have any chemistry. I think they're just really good actors and that individually they're good at playing a yearning. But when you get them together, I didn't really get any sparks. Did you? Well, it's hard because compared to the Baroness, you know, sparks were flying between Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. But I I would tend to agree with you. They don't seem to have much going on for them in the realm of like, you're like, oh, they actually really like each other. Like, once again, their relationship kind of falls into, you know, the rest of the movie and just kind of being a little bit stale. And and if I'm if I'm going to be honest, a little bit boring, like they they don't really inspire any passion in me. I mean, I think there's something to be said about when a TV or a movie couple is so magnetic on screen that people are like, I want them to date in real life. I think that Jenna Fisher and John Krasinski should have ended up together. And I hate Emily Blunt. You know what I mean? Like or (laughs) or like when uh, when Brad Pitt had had just gotten divorced from Jennifer Aniston and we saw him and Angelina Jolie in Mr. and Mrs. Smith and everybody was like. That's the woman who stole him away. And you could tell like the the tension in that movie was right. real. Right. I just yeah. don't get that from these two actors. You, you can kind of tell that when the cameras turned off, they were not having a good time with each other. Right. Yeah. It's not, uh, you know, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford getting it on <laughs> during the <laughs> filming of Star Wars. Uh, what We're devolving into a gossip podcast. Yeah. I, I, I think maybe it's, maybe it's time for us to hit pause here, Brad. Why don't we try this very old Barton 100 proof and then come back and finish talking about The Sound of Music? Let's gossip about it. So today we are checking out Very Old Barton 100 Proof, 
Brad, we have finally completed our journey through the very old Barton line. We started last season with the 80 proof, and then over the last few weeks, we did the 86, the 90, and now the bottled and bond version, the 100 proof. I'm really excited to try this because a lot of people think this is the crown jewel of the line. I think Very Old Barton is pretty good for a bottom shelf brand. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. I've actually uh, been slowly pushing my way through the Very Old Barton 90, and I, I'm not going to lie, it's grown on me. It's a really good, easy sipper. I, I'm a big fan. So there's not much else to say that hasn't been said. This is a budget bourbon. This is under $15 for our springtime of swill. We seem to have really both enjoyed the 86 and the 90 proof, so I can only imagine that this is going to be a little bit better. I do notice that it seems a little bit deeper in color. The thing that worries me a little bit, Brad, as we start to get into the nose here is that sometimes I think bottled in bond or 100 proof whiskeys hit this weird sort of middle spot for me where I like lower proof whiskeys. I like barrel proof whiskeys. Sometimes I find that like 100 to 108 proof can be harsher somehow than whiskeys that even have a higher proof. And I worry that because this is kind of a, a budget bourbon, we might end up getting something that's a little bit harsher than we want. Yeah, I would actually agree with that. And I, I wonder if part of it's like when you sign up for a barrel proof bourbon, you kind of know what you're getting into and you're a little more careful in the way you drink it. But with the 100 proof, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, I drink 90 proof all the time. Like, this is no big deal. And, and it, you know, it kind of sneaks up on you a little more than you expected. So with that in mind, Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this very old Barton? The initial notes, I'm getting a decent amount of ethanol. I, I don't feel like they mask that very well, um, but I am getting a, a few hints of vanilla. Um, I, I I don't want to call it florally, but I'm getting a little something from that realm that I'm not quite sure what to do with. Brad, I'm with you. I think that there's a ton of vanilla on this, especially uh, when you're drinking it out of a more rounded glass like we are today. Almost like a like a vanilla candle. Like it's it's a lot of vanilla. But yeah. you're right. There is just a ton of ethanol on the nose of this. It takes a while for this to kind of calm down and mellow out in the glass. Once it does, I get some kind of sweetness to it. I get a little bit of a banana scent, which is something that I think I brought up when we did our uh, bourbon charity blind tasting because this was in that that flight of whiskeys. I do get quite a bit of char and then a little bit of that kind of classic bourbony caramel smell as well. But overall, Brad, I think the two dominant notes here are ethanol and vanilla. And it's just really not a really distinct whiskey. I like it. It's solid, but it's not any better than anything else that we would normally try on the podcast. I'm going to give it a six on the nose. I man, I'm right there with you, Bob. Six. All right. Well, what do you say we give it a sip, Brad? Whew, yeah. There it is. That back end. Yep. Sometimes I feel like I need to give it a few sips before I comment on it. Because a lot of time that first, you know, consumption hits you and you're not even totally sure what you just drank. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let me, I'll go ahead and speak on it, Brad, because I'm, I'm a little surprised by this. I'm not super pleased with it. I'll say that up front. It's got some nice spice to it up front. Some of that alcohol tingle. But it seems kind of very manageable <laughs> until you go to swallow. And then all of a sudden, it was like all of the alcohol presented itself right on the very back yeah. of my palate. It almost made me cough. And I don't know if it was because I just kind of breathed in a little bit, but it was like an overwhelming amount of ethanol on the finish of it. I'm kind of surprised at how not sweet this is. It's almost got like a, a sour fermented kind of taste that 
carried over in it. It doesn't have that sort of darker wood character that I thought that it would have. And it certainly tastes a little bit more bitter and sour than the other very old Bartons did. Yeah, I, I've I've taken a few sips now. I get like a bare hint of caramel, like just a wisp of it on the front of my lips, but then it's gone. And like you said, on my palate, it's a little bit sour, not not too terribly, but just a little bit sour. And honestly, the lasting thing that sits with me is just the alcohol burn. I, I, I don't have much flavor. This honestly is a little bit thin for what I would expect a mm-hmm. hundred proof whiskey to be. For sure. I think once in a while when we're tasting whiskeys, Brad, there are just some notes that are so dominant and so obvious that I, you have to call them out like, oh, this... Henry McKenna tastes like peanut butter. It was just there. Sometimes there's so little going on that it's kind of like you'll get a flash of something going across your palate and you spend the next five minutes trying to figure out what was that small wisp of a taste that I got. I just got like the tiniest hint of cloves on this and it was there and it was gone. There's just no really dominant flavor in this whiskey and I'm super disappointed with that. I'm going to give it a four on the taste. Bob, we we are emulating the 90s boy band because we're in sync right now. Hmm. I'm going to give it a four as well. And I I think for the finish, I think I'm going to stick at a four. It's not a bad finish. I I will give it that. It, It doesn't have anything outstanding that's like sour or leaves a poor taste on my palate. But there's nothing great either. It really just kind of burns for a while and then and then goes away. My third and fourth sips of this, I think it's kind of starting to open up a little bit on my palate. I like the finish better than I like the taste. It is kind of bitter. I get a lot of good black coffee notes on it, though, which I really like. It's not an unpleasant finish, and it's lasting enough, especially for being so thin in terms of the mouthfeel of it. So I'm actually going to give it a six and a half on the finish. And that takes us to overall balance. This is nose, taste, and finish put together. Brad, I don't know that this is a particularly well-balanced whiskey. I think that the nose presented a lot of notes that weren't there on the palate, and then the finish was a completely different thing as well. So I don't know. It kind of depends on how we define balance. Is it just like that it gives one consistent note throughout, or is it just that you know one isn't more harsh than the other? How do you define balance when you think about it, Brad? When I think about balance, I think about consistency of quality throughout the drink. Mm -hmm. So if I smell banana at the front end and I taste it on my palate and it lingers with me on the finish, then I'm going to say that that was well balanced. But if I get the smell on the front end and then on the palate, it's completely gone. And then on the back end, I just barely get a hint of banana. Then I'm going to say, well, it's it's not a very well balanced whiskey. And, And you can do that with anything. If it's very alcohol forward on the nose and on the palate and on the finish, then, well, I mean, it, it was balanced. You know, maybe I didn't want that much alcohol to be forward, but but at, at the very least, it was balanced. So I'll say this. I don't necessarily have to have the same flavors or the same scents, whatever. Like I picked up banana on the nose. I didn't have to get banana in the flavor. The thing for me especially is the alcohol content is huge for me on something like this. Like if I had a really subtle nose and then I take a sip and it's like a blast of ethanol in my mouth, that's an unbalanced whiskey. I think harshness is something that really stands out for me. This one, it was really harsh on the nose. It wasn't as harsh on the finish, but especially like when we went to swallow, Brad, like I coughed, you coughed. It was something that was really unexpected. 
I don't think this is a particularly well-balanced whiskey. I think I'm only going to give it a four and a half on balance. Bob, you know what I just realized? What's that? I can actually taste some banana on this. For the very first time in the Film and Whiskey podcast history, I'm actually right there with you. It it took me about... I did it! (laughs) Anything is possible! (laughs) It took me about five or six sips, but I actually kind of noticed it has that kind of that sweet, just banana-y flavor to it. I, I, I understand. Brad, I am. We're unlocking a whole new world of bourbon tasting for you, my friend. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes a while, you know. Getting getting your palate to be at a point where it starts to taste, you know, various flavors, it, it doesn't just happen overnight. Like I've been drinking uh, different whiskeys once a week for the past year and two months now, and I I'm still, you know, discovering brand new flavors that are are hitting my palate from a week to week basis. So yeah, for the first time, I, I I just took a sip and I'm like, oh. It kind of reminds me of a banana. Okay, so with that in mind, Brad, how would that impact your balance score? Honestly, I I think it's decently balanced. It, it's not great, but I do get similar flavors and quality throughout. I'm going to give it a six on balance. All right, so that takes us to overall value. Now, again, this is not a whiskey that you're probably going to find nationwide. The distribution is pretty limited to Kentucky. But we had a lot of people questioning when we were going to get around to Very Old Barton. So we're finishing out the line. When I went to Kentucky to try to buy this bottle, they were sold out. It seems like the 100 proof is the one that sells out the most. Uh, So our friend, urban bourbonist Chris Blattner, sent us each a sample of this. Once again, we cannot thank you enough, Chris, for keeping our podcast afloat. Yeah, Chris is the freaking man. Like, he is such a phenomenal friend of show. I Honestly, I don't know why we haven't had him on yet. I think we should. I, he might be too big for us now, Brad. It, it would be like punching above our weight class to have him on here. Yeah. I mean, we already had Josh Larson on here, and that was that was well above our pay grade. <laughs> so this very old Barton clocks in at about $15 for a fifth. Uh, I'm trying to get us a, a accurate figure here, Brad. Okay, so sorry. It clocks in at about $13 for a fifth. Uh, so, you know, it's it's at the higher end of our springtime of swill, but honestly, the price range is only from 10 to $15, essentially. So, like, this is this is pretty much right in the middle. I think this is one of the better ones for $13. You know, I'm not a huge fan of this whiskey, but when you tell me it's $13, I'm like, yeah, okay, this is a much better whiskey than I would anticipate if you just said $13 whiskey. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Bob. I I actually, I think I'm going to give this a seven and a half on value for how much we... I don't want to say use the word trashed, but for how much we kind of poo-pooed this whiskey, it's actually a pretty good whiskey. It's not the bottom of the barrel, and I would pick this up for $13 any day of the week. Yeah, I think I'm actually going to give it an eight on value. I'm right there with you, Brad. $13, I can't think of a lot of whiskeys that are going to knock your socks off for that price, and this is a pretty solid pour at that price range. I mean, if if you were going to divvy it up and, and pour some for a friend, two ounces of this is essentially going to cost like a dollar. Can't think of a better pour that you would get for a dollar. And so that's going to bring me out to a 29 out of 50. Brad, what's that bringing you out to? I'm at a 27 and a half out of 50. All right. A 27 and a half. That takes us to a 56.5 out of 100 or an average of a 28.25. So slightly above average. Brad, where do you think this would fall in the springtime of Swill? I mean, I think this is one of the better ones we've had, to be honest. Yeah, I actually probably would put this maybe in the second to fourth slot, somewhere in that range. 
Yeah, I agree. And this again, this is how price can sway you because is it my favorite whiskey? Absolutely not. If this was $30, I would trash it. But at $13, I'm going to recommend this whiskey. Brad, are you going to recommend? I will. I, honestly, heck, if this was at like $18 to $19, I might not recommend it. But for $13, it's a pretty good pickup. I, I think you'll enjoy it. Yeah, I totally agree. So that concludes our walk through the very old Barton line. Thank you again to Chris Blattner, urban bourbonist, for sending us this sample. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about the sound of music? Let's get to it. Right, so that was very old Barton 100 proof. Brad, I got to be honest, the, the more I drink this, the more I sip on it, I like it more. I feel like I may have been a little harsh in my initial reactions to it. I do like this whiskey. Yeah, it's it's better at, the, at you know, like you said, at the end when all is said and done, I, it was a good whiskey. Well, Brad, we're going to be talking about a movie that everyone seems to agree is a really good movie. And as we get back into talking about it, I do want to touch on Robert Wise a little bit. Now, this is a guy who I don't think gets enough credit as a director. He started out in Hollywood as an editor. He was the editor for Citizen Kane, a small movie that you may have heard of. Uh, he started directing his own films in the 50s and 60s. He made the original uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Ah. He's famous for a few horror movies that he made. And then he's also you know, an Oscar-winning director for The Sound of Music and for West Side Story. I will say, on West Side Story, he was listed as a co-director with this guy, Jerome Robbins, who came over from Broadway as a choreographer. And they've never really said what happened on the set of that movie, but apparently the rumor is that Robert Wise kind of got fired halfway through making that movie and that Jerome Robbins was responsible for a lot of what we see on screen. And so I went into watching this movie kind of remembering the, the vibe, the camera movements, the shot compositions that I was used to in West Side Story. And I was trying to see like, okay, can I see any similarities? Can I see any sort of, you know, director's trademarks? And I think Robert Wise is really good at shots where the camera is completely stationary and the characters kind of wander into it, especially when they do like big rooms or big cavernous spaces. Yeah. And you see the characters come in like very small. There's this really great shot when Julie Andrews first gets to the captain's home and she goes into the dance hall. And it's a shot of like just the wall and everything's gilded and gold. And she walks in and I'm like, oh, that, that shot was perfect. But there was a lot of that in West Side Story. I'm remembering the Maria number when Tony's walking down the street and they have these big sort of pastoral shots that the, the character just kind of wanders into. I do think if I'm just comparing the two that Jerome Robbins is probably responsible for the sort of kinetic energy of West Side Story. I don't think that there's a lot of movement going on in this movie. And even like when the children kind of dance, it's like this cute little sing-songy dance. There's not a lot of vibrant energy to this movie. I noticed it a lot in the the climb every mountain scene. Apparently the mother superior wasn't able to lip sync her part very well, so they kind of put her in the dark. But what I hate about that is like that song is the biggest beltiest song in the whole movie. 
Like if, if it was cats, this would be memory. You know what I mean? Right. It's the one that people remember. And it was the most visually boring thing I've ever seen. They literally sat a camera in a corner and one of the two characters was in the dark and Julie Andrews was just sitting there looking at the dark. Robert Wise does a lot of really cool stuff in this movie, but I feel like there's also a ton of times where he just drops the ball completely. Yeah, I I think that when you look at West Side Story, you see where musicals are going. You know what I mean? Mm. Like the phrase you use, kinetic energy, I think is huge. Like when you think about modern musicals like Cats or Rent, you see a lot more of West Side Story in them than you do The Sound of Music. And The Sound of Music feels like the epitome or the height of the old guard's classic musical. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And with that in mind, I I think that with The Sound of Music, you're really at the peak of what that type of musical has to offer. It has the big set pieces. It has those big open spaces. It has the long, drawn-out, you know, kind of plot line and story. But it also has those big, belty, amazingly beautiful songs. And I, I think that's, in the end... The two things that keep this movie, you know, in our hearts and in our minds is Julie Andrews and the music. And and the songs in this film are just spectacular. Oh, I completely agree. Brad, there is a run that the songs in this movie go on. And in a row, here's the list of songs that we get back to back to back to back. 16 going on 17. My favorite things. Do Re Mi. Edelweiss. So Long Farewell climb every mountain like that is six absolute bangers (laughs) right in a row i can't think of a musical with a better run of songs than this one it's like every single song in that stretch is just an absolute classic of the genre yeah you you when you get into the meat and potatoes of this movie you know of the songs there are just so many classic hits that like i said at the start of this podcast You can hate musicals and have never seen The Sound of Music in your life and still know the tune and some of the major lyrics of at least four to five songs in this film. And that, I don't know why, but that's just mind-blowing to me that it would be so culturally prevalent to still know these songs. that, That just blows my mind. Okay, Brad, so here it's time for me to be my nitpicky self because I totally agree and I totally love all of those songs. But the crazy thing is that, like, if you asked me to name my favorite part of the movie, I don't know that the part with all those songs in it would be my favorite. Like, it's the part that I remember. It's the part that I watch YouTube clips of. But I think the only reason this movie really works is because we have these incredible songs to distract us from the fact that there's really no plot for two hours. And the plot really doesn't come in until the very end of the movie. So I don't know if you agree with that or not, Brad, but it's kind of like I I almost feel like I have to make a trade off when I'm thinking about this movie because those songs are incredible and they're like a really great diversion for me. And they're so, so enjoyable. They're so well shot. They're so well edited. They're so well sung. But at the same time, they're like smack dab in the middle of this part of the musical where nothing's really happening. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think it's one of those things where you realize that the things that stick in people's mind 
aren't always the parts that usually make up a good movie. You know, sometimes there's certain things about a film that stand out to people that just, it doesn't matter what else the movie does, they're going to love it, and they're going to make it the highest grossing film of all time. And I, I think that you see that in this film. There isn't a ton of story going on, but in the end, this is a film that people love. And and Bob, I'm right there with you. The music in this movie distracts from the fact that there's probably about an hour's worth of movie stretched out over three hours, like as far as the plot goes. And so I the movie should be two to two hours and 20 minutes, and that's it. There's a lot of fat on this movie. But if you're okay with me getting into final scores, I think that this movie is about an eight out of 10. There's a lot of spectacular things about this film, but there's also a lot of valleys where there's a lot of stuff that nothing is going on, nothing's happening, and some of the acting is a little suspect, and you just kind of got to call it what it is, but it still is a spectacular movie. Yeah, I completely agree, Brad. And this is one of those things where halfway through the movie, I was like, I took a note that just said, I loved this movie before. What happened? (laughs) And I... I think honestly what it is, is that this is one of those movies that as years go by and, you know, as adults, we don't watch these movies all the time anymore. We remember the sentimental parts, parts that hooked us as children really fondly. It's kind of the same thing with The Wizard of Oz. Like if you were going to go on YouTube and look up a Wizard of Oz clip, you want to watch Over the Rainbow. You want to watch If I Only Had a Brain. And it's the same thing with this movie. If you just showed me the five minute clip of Do Re Mi like I'm in heaven. It's so catchy. It's so good. It's so cute. It's it's incredible. But then you forget about the fact that in between each of those songs, there's like 20 minutes of just a complete lull in the movie. It really does seem to grind to a halt, I think, at multiple points of the film. And I guess I just got used to the good parts. So I was thinking going into this, it's going to be a nine and a half or a 10. But Brad, I am right there with you. It's an eight out of 10 for me. I think everything in this movie is a little too cute at times. I think that a lot of the characters don't behave like real people. And for me, at least, that sort of over-the-top cutesiness got a little bit grating for a while. We already talked about how if this movie was 40 minutes shorter, I think it would be a perfect film. It'd be a 10 out of 10. The music would complement the story instead of seeming to just stretch everything out a little bit longer. So, Brad, for one of the very few times this season, it seems like we're going to give a movie the exact same score. The Sound of Music, despite being one of the most beloved movies ever, I think as a film is just an 8 out of 10. Well, and that's that's the problem, isn't it? Because this isn't just a film. It's a musical. And so I think some people, you know, they remember what you said. They remember those musical numbers. And and that's fine. And I'm sure that this as a musical on Broadway might be a 10 out of 10 musical. But as a movie here on the film and whiskey podcast, it, it is just an eight out of 10. And I think that's OK. Uh, but honestly, we want to know what you have to think. So if you have something to say about this and if you feel like we're incredibly off base with our analysis of this film, let us know. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Film Whiskey. Or you could give us a call. Call in and leave an opinion on this movie. You can find us at 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Next week, we will be back for Memorial Day, honoring America's Fallen as we watch the 1998 Steven Spielberg classic, Saving Private Ryan. 
For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.